0: Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host, with... Class C properties selling for cap rates equivalent to B and A class properties, a number of operators are exchanging into A class. These properties are easier to hold for the long term because they don't have the same looming cap X to deal with over the next several years. Today's guest, Keith Wasserman, co-founder of Gelt Inc. in Southern California, started out with heavier value-add projects in Bakersfield, than Phoenix, plus other Western markets. More recently, he's been trading up to newer vintage properties for longer-term holds. So today we have with us a man who has been just amazingly successful in the multi-family space at the southern end of the uh, golden state of California, as yours truly is in the Bay Area, northern part of the state, and uh, just a guy that's just doing fantastic things. And I've been so excited to speak to him. I heard him on another podcast and have done a little bit of reading. And I want to welcome Keith Wasserman, who is the president and co-founder of Gelt Inc. Keith, welcome to Street Smart Success. Yeah, thanks for having me, Roger. I'm excited to be on the show. Yep. And here, here we are. And so Keith, you know, I've got some familiarity with you, but you know, my listeners and maybe not as much, you know, before we get into the great business stuff. And I, I think you started like with like some multifamily stuff in Bakersfield, if I remember, but let's go back even further. I know you went to USC. So are you, are you born and bred in SoCal? And if so, like where exactly did you grow up? And like, what was the early Keith Wasserman story?
1: Yeah. So um, Angelino, native here. I still live here, lived my whole life here, even went, like you said, to USC. Um, not many of us like that. But yeah, I, I uh, grew up in a city called Woodland Hills in the LA area, in the San Fernando Valley. And uh, I was an 818 Valley guy up until three years ago, until I moved to the west side, uh, Santa Monica, which is around 20, 30 degrees cooler uh, than the valley. D- didn't know what I was missing. But um, yeah, I, I grew up in a very like entrepreneurial family and My dad had a very large law practice. It was the largest one in the San Fernando Valley. He had around eighty attorneys, and I grew up seeing him, not really loving the law. And he was really just constantly looking for the next, you know, case, and constantly overseeing all the different attorneys and billing. And I never really had an interest in in becoming a lawyer. And I've always been sort of entrepreneurial. My dad is very entrepreneurial too. He has a lot of different business ventures that sort of, you know, keep him excited and going. And I'm like, you know, so I, I started at a young age just. Doing all kinds of entrepreneurial things,
0: actually. So, uh, just a quick aside is my wife's, she actually moved from New Jersey in high school to, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank, Northridge.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not too far from me. Yeah. That's right. The epicenter of the ninety-four earthquake.
0: Exactly. So, uh, so, so I, I've been through Woodland Hills many, many, many times o- over the years. And so, at a young age, you were an entrepreneur. So, like, like uh, you talking paper routes, mowing lawns, uh, buying stuff, and selling it on the internet, what kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. So my earliest sort of entrepreneurial ventures, I'd say, I learned about investing at an early age. Around uh, thirteen years old, I, I had my bar mitzvah and. I' invested all my money into the stock market. but even before that, I'd say I started even at like eight to ten years old my my parents and my nanny would bring me to Costco. We would buy boxes of chocolates and then uh, sell them one by one at the park. and just you know th- that became you know when I was around seven sixteen, seventeen, I bought a hundred of these leather jackets that were uh, irregulars. they had little blemishes on them. I went to downtown l a and Um, I learned how to negotiate and just, I bought these leather jackets for $10 a piece that had retail stickers of like, I don't even know, $400 and, but they had tiny blemishes and stuff. So I I sold them out of the trunk of my car to the teachers, the janitors, the principal, the, all my, um, friends, families. And I, I, I made like 10 grand. I sold them for like a hundred dollars a piece and quickly learned, you know, you make money on the buy. Like if I, if you buy something right, there's a market. You know to resell it and that's your profit margin then you're gonna do do well so i started like doing that and that led to my first real business uh, keith's bargain center that, that i ran from 03 to 07 on ebay we sold around 200,000 items i started literally my family friend came with to me with a, a horse saddle that they had sitting and getting dusty in their garage and they said look we spent I don't even know. Let's call it hundreds of dollars, $500, thousand, whatever it is. Can you salvage this? And there's this new thing called eBay. And I said, yeah, I'll figure it out. So I put it on eBay and it went for like hundreds of dollars. And I sort of got hooked and started selling stuff of my own and then going to local auctions, going to downtown LA and eventually sort of outgrowing my parents' big house. They have a big house. And I literally stuffed it to the gills with merchandise and I got kicked out and uh, had to get a real warehouse. And you know, I was
0: running that business while I was going to school uh, at USC. Wow, man. okay. why did you uh, why did you move to Santa monica and, and out of the valley?
1: Yeah, so just I'd say quality of life. i mean i I, I lived there my whole life. I think it, I think I thought it was a good time for a change. It's near the beach. i you know I, I could I run one and a half miles. I'm at the beach and back and um you have nice hiking trails, and it's just a lot cooler. It's um just a beautiful place to i'm I'm actually in the process of moving to Pacific Palisades. so that's gonna be the final destination and I think that's one of the nicest areas in LA to like raise a family. I see kids freely walking around and, you know, it's, it's, it's got a nice town center and it, it's just a nice neighborhood. I feel like, so that that's the ultimate destination, but, um, yeah, it was a big change moving from the San Fernando Valley where I lived, uh, my whole life. I was, I was in Sherman Oaks um, before that for eight years.
0: Gosh, we, uh, we were down there a couple years ago over the holidays, not the Jewish holidays, but the, I'll uh, the, call them the Christian holidays for lack of a better. And we stayed in Sherman Oaks uh, pretty close to Ventura Boulevard on on the right side of the boulevard. Uh, I, I don't yeah. remember. <laughs> but the side, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the south of the boulevard, the bigger homes, nicer homes. My, my my first home, starter home, was definitely not south of the boulevard. It was north of the boulevard, but that area, it's crazy. I mean, like, I bought my house for seven hundred forty thousand in two thousand ten, and now these things are probably worth a million and a half, like double, probably. And just in the last few years, they've gone up like crazy. And yeah, it, how just housing prices in general in Southern California, and LA, I mean, ev- everywhere,
0: I think. But it's re- becoming really crazy. Yeah. Pretty much, and anyway, I loved it. We stayed there at an Airbnb for for a week. But so, so tell me, how did you decide to get into the into the real estate business, and what was the entry point and all that?
1: Yeah, so my cousin Damien, who's also very entrepreneurial, he he like was let go of his job of five years. Um, he was an environmental consultant, and we had been on the side trying to figure out businesses to start, and sort of had a lot of thoughts and ideas and false starts and. And then he said, "You know, my 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 dad. So, uh, Damien's um, dad. He he's a step technically a step cousin. So, he, he his mom married my uncle, and we grew up together. And he he came to me and he said his dad was in Bakersfield, you know, five days a week, and then coming home on the weekends to Pasadena. But sort of was seeing the huge boom that was going on and called the early two thousands, so three, four, five, six, leading up to the housing bust. And then they sort of got killed during the housing crisis and." Houses calling one to four units, which are considered residential, you know, financed with residential mortgages, were being foreclosed on left and right during the more, you know, housing crisis. So his dad saw the huge run up and then bust before even LA and other parts got hit. And we started literally, Damien, my cousin, bought the first one. He bought it with an FHA loan. It was a four unit building, bank owned on the east side of Bakersfield, sort of rougher part of town and uh he bought it with uh no money out of his pocket essentially he got a um a loan from a friend for five thousand dollars which was the down payment for fha you only needed like two and a half percent down at the time and then uh he he got a cash advance of ten thousand dollars on his credit card he like moved moved the balance over i'm not sure exactly the details but he he used that towards the the rehab and that's what he how how we got started but it was his deal he did and then i came in and I bought. Uh, I put the down payment for the second fourplex, um, and he got on the loan. And then we did we did another one of those where my dad put the uh, down payment. And these were all fourplexes trading at call it one hundred twenty five to one hundred seventy five thousand dollars for the whole four unit building. And um, they previously sold for like five to six hundred thousand, so they were you know pennies on the dollar, and the rents they were down, but not like that substantially to where you know your cash flow was huge if you ke- if you kept the units all occupied. So we sort of cut our teeth on these little four unit. REO buildings that we bought uh, from the bank in 2009.
0: We bought 13 of them. Wow. Well, I'll tell you something that's it's kind of a funny thing is is your cousin's on the one hand is not a blood relative, but he sounds like he's is entrepreneurial as entrepreneurial as you are at least somewhat.
1: Yeah. No, we grew up together, and um his father also very entrepreneurial and doing all kinds of businesses, and all you know, usually always worked for himself. And I think I think you you model your behavior after. I don't know how much of his innate or like learned entrepreneurialism. And I think having both helps, like, you know, having the genes, but also seeing, seeing it in action. Right. So, um, and, and encouraging children to try and make mistakes. And, you know, some of my most successful friends that have exited huge businesses or running big businesses, like they, this wasn't their first go, go around. They failed, you know, multiple times on other businesses and ventures. So I think, uh, encouraging children at a young age to just use their creativity and, and see what, what's needed in society and, and to build and, and do out-of-the-box stuff, you know, is important.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, you learn from failure. It says, I, I think this is attributed to Bill Gates, and I don't know if he really said it, like so many quotes, but it doesn't matter. And it's that success is a very poor teacher. No, it's, <laughs> it's true, for sure. So, so at it, it, this juncture, or I'll just ask it this way, um, and obviously we don't need to go into every every deal. We certainly don't have the time for that. But where where did you then go, and and when did you start scaling up, and where, and you know how big, and all that?
1: Yeah, great question. So we bought thirteen of these four plexes, and we, you know, we quickly ran out of our own money. My dad only did that one, and and you know he's like, you got to go out and raise outside capital. So. You know, we were uh, listening to Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, trying to figure out how to raise our first you know, 100 grand and, and then the next 100 grand. And we, we brought in a few family friends to buy those 14 or 13 fourplexes. And then we sort of made a big jump. In uh, December of 09. We, we put together, um, I, I added two more partners. Uh, we call them the gray hair partners, senior partners, one being my dad who helped us qualify for uh, larger loans. And he helped us by putting his own bucks in, but also bringing in a lot of family, friends, and clients of his to invest with us. And then another gentleman came named Adrian Goldstein, who um, had experience running larger multifamily properties for his father-in-law. So we, we formed our team and we went out and put together a group of eight investors to buy a 78-unit building in, also in Bakersfield, You know the market we knew. It was like a $3.9 million purchase. We raised $1.3 million. We didn't take any of our acquisition fee. We rolled it back into the deal. I was still living at home and you know, my expenses were really low, which is pretty cool. Like you you know, starting a business, it's awesome not to be you know, burdened by huge nut every month or a family to feed and stuff. So yeah, we, we started lean and mean and we bought, you know, that 78 unit building and it was awesome just learning the business
0: with good mentors along the way. And so when you say mentors, uh, are you talking like formal mentors, real estate mentors, You know, which there's so many, it's proliferated like crazy lately and guys that charge you to be a mentor or just kind of people that you met along the way that were mentioning nice guys that just kind of helped you out and gave you advice?
1: Yeah, we we did all of it. I mean, we we got to advise the partnership. So we, Adrian was the one that had the most experience dealing with multifamily properties and he sort of was our mentor, even though he's a partner, but like in the early days, which I tell a lot of young people. So it was me, Damien, and we had one other younger gentleman named Evan Rock, who w- we only owned uh combined, I think a third. And then we gave my dad a third and Adrian a, goal, a third. So like, I only had like 11% in the way beginning, but I was happy to have 11% of something that could be big rather than you know one hundred percent or whatever something very tiny or fifty percent me and Damien. so like it enabled us to take that step to doing bigger deals and and over time we 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 proved ourselves and then the three younger guys we eventually went up to forty five percent and then eventually one of the younger guys left and Adrian left and now it's literally just a third a third a third me and my dad and my cousin the the ownership of the like managing member and stuff. but the um yeah, we've never had gone out and paid, I guess to for advice and stuff, but like yeah, I've had a lot of mentors along the way. Uh, Sam Freshman, who sort of wrote the book on real estate syndication, has been awesome. Another local guy who passed, named Jonah Goldrich, taught us a lot of wisdom. And I'd say, yeah, I think just the best experience was learning by by just doing it, and you know, one deal at a time kind of thing, and, and just learning by by uh, by doing it.
0: So at this juncture what what is in your wheelhouse now in terms of market geography uh, vintage uh, what's the profile of what you're you're currently doing?
1: Yeah, so from Bakersfield we, we sort of like continued buying in Bakersfield and we, we bought like three hundred fifty units there and sort of outgrew that market because it's, just, it's a tiny market. There wasn't a lot of properties on the market for sale of size, so then we moved to Phoenix. 2010 when blood was in the street wow uh, we we bought 2500 give or take apartment units there from 2010 to 2015 so that was like the market we were buying in exclusively and up until 2015 or 16 we started buying in denver and salt lake city reno portland we just moved market to market so we try to target a market and then try to buy at least 1,000 units in each of those markets. And sometimes we're successful at that, sometimes we're not, and we'll exit it for different reasons, markets, but we're, we're really market-driven and product type, multifamily, garden style. Nowadays, 200 units are larger preferred because it takes the same amount of time and energy to, to acquire and manage a, a larger building than a smaller building. And um, yeah, we, we, we exited Phoenix... Uh, which hurts me because values have gone up like tremendously. Since told. <laughs> yeah, but, but like that's how my brain is. But I can't look back really, and it, it's hard. It's does nothing productive as long as you like learn from the mistakes, I guess. But we we had re- good reasons to sell to create the track record, return capital to investors, and um, anything that we subsequently bought has has done tremendously as, as well. So n- nowadays, like we're, we're we're selling a lot of the original buildings that were built in this call it '60s, '70s, '80s, and exchanging into newer buildings built 2000 newer 2010 and newer because um the cap rates are not they're very similar actually right now whereas before it used to be a big spread between the newer product and the older product and people are paying up for older and value add and i'm trying to zig one other zag a little bit And, and it's easier to hold buildings that are newer long term they don't have as much deferred maintenance and big ticket items that are that are that just eat away your capex account so Gelt 1.0, call it like older buildings for the most part,
0: and Gelt 2.0 are what we're selling and exchanging into um, over the last few years. Got it. Do you think that um, you know setting aside the the cap rates being super low, even for C class and places like Denver, Austin, Dallas, Atlanta, blah blah blah, you name it, Phoenix. Do you think that there's a systems obsolescence risk on those buildings?
1: I think there's always going to be demand for affordable housing, generally the older buildings, um, you know, and there's less and less of them that have not been renovated and stuff. Like there's all these apartment people that are going in, renovating, lifting rents. So like, I, I don't think you're going to have the same functional obsolescence of apartments versus like certain other ca- kind of real estate asset classes.
0: Um, I mean, the systems, the, the, like the plumbing the, and- the, Yeah, the yeah. systems. Yeah, they, they're, they get
1: old and cost so much to maintain and update and, and then- and you know big plumb we've had pit- big, huge plumbing jobs, millions of dollar plumbing jobs that we just didn't account for. And like I mean, we knew the plumbing was bad, and, and we tried to just put band-aids on it, but eventually it just goes out and like, yeah, you, know, you have chillers go out on the boy, like the old properties just cost a lot more to run, so uh, than we anticipated even. so yeah, that's that's why we're 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 selling them and and upgrading the portfolio. They're good to like go in and out of it on a trade, but we're trying to be long-term holders in general. and so i I prefer something that's a lot newer.
0: See, what I wonder is 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 kind of what I was driving at, which I did a terrible job of of explaining my question, is the people that are buying from you is as you exchange into you know a class stuff. I, I wonder, you know, inevitably they're paying a low cap. Maybe they're paying you four and a half cap or something like that, or I, I don't know what it is. I, I wonder if they're paying too much to the extent that they won't be able to absorb, you know, a, let's say something that, you know, unforeseen happens with them and they have a million, a million dollar, you know, plumbing repair on a, on a, a building because it's too old. And, and yet they don't have enough daylight in the financials to make it through. That's what I'm really asking. Guys are. yeah, no, we,
1: we 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 were undercapitalized in some buildings and we got bailed out because of the market, and that's why we're peeling them away. The ones that we want to, you know, get rid of the ones that are in areas. Some of the, the the lower rent ones in the portfolio really struggled with collections during COVID. And yeah, I think I, I find now is a good time while values are high to pay up for quality and, and sort of prune the portfolio and sell the, the ones that are inferior areas or that are older, like you said, that just, you know, suck capital too much. And uh, look, the, the buyers of these might do well with them. I hope they do. But definitely you have to be properly capitalized. To take over an older building in general.
0: I guess you just have to have the right amount of reserves at the end of the day. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the 6th largest insurance property broker in the US. If you want a roll your sleeves up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, Vice President, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467 5909. You'll be glad you did. And so Keith, in terms of where you then are doing your exchanging into, is it the markets you were saying, Portland, Denver, Reno, like what markets have you been exchanging into in the last, I don't know, 12 to 18 months, 6, 12, 18 months?
1: Yeah. So I'd say we exchanged into Denver a few times, which is a market we continue to buy in. We also Exchanged into some Southern California deals, trying to be a little more contrarian. A lot of our, you know, we the things you hear are, you know, to be wary of California. People are leaving. It's very, you know, tough to do business. And there's tr- truths and all that. But at the same time, the cap rates here are actually higher and better than, like, say, like a Phoenix, which right now is leading the nation in rent growth, but historically has been very boom and bust, sort of a low cost leader. And I think I like buying areas where it's Tougher to build, and just I guess desirable, and just like you know, it's um, less boom and bust, more more insulated from the, the big swings in the economy. So I, I'd rather buy, and we just closed um, a deal in Anaheim, and that was a, an exchange. We closed, we're closing another one in Long Beach. We bought an, an with non-exchange dollars another one in Long Beach. So trying to buck the trend and buy SoCal right now, actually, when when everyone's running away, running to these other markets and Driving the prices up.
0: Yeah, who who would have ever said that cap rates would be lower in Phoenix than in Southern California?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I, I understand what people are saying and because the rent growth is phenomenal, but it's, I think it's just temporary. And you know, we we've, we've seen how bad it could get in in markets like Phoenix during the recession. They rents dropped twenty percent, for example, from top to bottom. So it, just look at it. As my mentor said, is like as long as you have holding power and you can hold through any downturn, I mean you'll you'll be fine. But um it's 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 gonna be it would it was a tough time for people that owned bu- buildings in Phoenix in oh nine and ten, you know, when we started buying there.
0: It's interesting. There there's a, a very aggressive guy. and you may know who he is, although it seems like you've been out of there for a number of years, but he is on fire and uh, he's buying a lot of C-class stuff and, you know, just value add and, you know, if if he does, he's vertically integrated, he's a smart guy, but everything is, you know, if we put in five to eight grand a unit, we'll be able to get another 250 bucks a month in, in really, really working class areas. And, you know, kind of the thesis as well, you know, rent growth, like 26% last year or something like that. Or yeah, I think I mean I think that is what the number is, believe it or not. And it's in my mind, it's like, yeah, but like when does it like what if it doesn't? <laughs> what is what if the what what if the rent stops growing? And and to me, that just feels risky that you're just buying on future value as opposed to like value right now, but whatever. So what do you uh, what do you like about Denver?
1: Yeah, Denver, we still see better cap rates than a market like a Phoenix or Vegas. We see tremendous amount of Job growth and in migration, and you know millennials moving there, and just a well-run city. And um, there's pockets that we really, really like that are like uh, like just in Lakewood. We have like a thousand units, and there's sort of a a cap on how many units could be built every year there, which which is good for for owners of existing buildings. And yeah, it's just a market that we know very well, and we have property management expertise there that could run our properties really efficiently, economies of scale, and it's. Um, yeah, we've seen also good rent growth there and good fundamentals. And I don't, I don't, we don't see that stopping anytime soon.
0: And in terms of the properties you just did in Anaheim and Long Beach, you know, obviously per door, it's a heck of a lot more expensive, I would think, than um, a Phoenix or Las Vegas. So I'm wondering what, what are the size of the properties that you were buying there?
1: Yeah. So um, the Anaheim deal was at the time, our biggest deal we closed. It was in terms of dollars. So yeah, 312 units, 146 million, give or take dollars. We, uh, we exchanged out of Seattle. We had some stuff in Kent and Federal Way, which are sort of blue collar markets there. And we really struggled with collections in those markets. And the properties were a little bit on the older side. So we looked at it as a real win. We, we were able to get out of those and hit a single for the investors. Not Nothing w- w- as good as we projected, I'd say. So only like two or three times we've underperformed versus overperformed. But I feel like we'll have a second chance by moving that capital tax deferred you know into the 1031 into anaheim which was 2009 built and just an amazing property it's it's called oasis it looks like an oasis like a resort when you're on the property and it's um, huge employers all nearby and just a really um awesome building and and there's still upside we're, we're renovating all the interiors because the current the, the the developer that built it sort of delivered it during the recession and skimped out on on the finishes towards the end, so we're we're coming in there and you know spending I don't know fifteen plus thousand a unit, lifting rents three to four hundred dollars per month, and um, the market's taking it and then some. The market's growing. We we see some huge lease trade outs and stuff just going on in that market as well. So yeah, I feel like you know if I'm if I'm paying up for something, pay, pay up for something sort of in a core SoCal kind of area and. Um, that's that's our thought
0: if you hit a single for an investor for your investors coming out of seattle what what's a single the way you're describing it in that case
1: yes i think we hit like an eight irr we always sort of underwrite nowadays like 12 to 14 kind of thing on a 10-year hold maybe a little higher if it's a five-year hold but yeah it was this troubled property but we got bailed out by the market and we we took it and ran i mean i guess we could have held it and probably done i think the current ownership that bought it's going to do great with it but like we we were running low in the capex account, and it was just struggling, you know, with collections. It was an older building, needed a lot of capital, and we said, let's let's you know take take the modest profit and, and roll it into something that's going to be better. So we did that, and we're in the process. We're selling a big one in Denver right now that it's it's going to be a huge return to the investors, like a three or four x over I don't know five years or so, and we're rolling that into um, a brand new building built in Long Beach that's in lease up. So, um, and we already bought another one in Long Beach, um, recently. So we were trying to build some mass in that, that market and yeah, so that's sort of been the strategy.
0: And then do you typically, and maybe you already said this and I didn't, and I didn't pick up on it. Do you underwrite for a five-year hold or, or are you longer term or just depend on the deal?
1: Yeah. Generally we pr- do a 10-year projection and show that just to show investors that real estate's long-term and just park money that they don't need access to to really just show them this is not a liquid kind of investment and it should just be patient capital. But in reality, we sold a lot of deals after three to five years. And but then the majority of people exchange. We always exchange when we sell. So majority of them will just roll with us and and get mad if we do not (laughs) exchange and just return capital. So I'd say we just recently on two deals did these bridge loans that have five years term. So we might've modeled a five year just to show them that. But in general, we've always been long-term fixed rate debt, 10 year kind of loans. Um, and we're, we're going to try to get out of these bridge loans as quickly as possible and slap on a long-term fixed rate. We're, we're pretty conservative, conservative shop. Um, even the bridge loans we got, we, we could have got a lot more leverage than they wanted to give us.
0: That's so interesting that you exchange on on every property. Um, I've I've been involved with a syndicator up here for many years. I don't know if if you ever heard of Hamilton Zams.
1: Very very well. I know him very well. Yeah.
0: Okay. And Mark converted to Judaism and, and he's more, uh, he's more, he, he's kosher, which I can't say for myself. It's pretty interesting. But they, I've been with them and yeah, they they as well. But a, a lot of people, I, I don't find that most do and I don't know exactly why. Now, what's your thinking about starting a fund as opposed to deal by deal?
1: Yeah. So years ago, we, we got close because we, we did all the legal work, spent a lot of money, and we we're like, let's go do this. And then we've, we thought and we're like, you know, if it's, if it's not broke, don't fix it. We're doing really well. We're able to raise more and more capital deal by deal. And it's it's better for both the, us and the investors. So for the investors, I, I think real estate should not be done in a fund because when you do a fund, you have to liquidate everything within 10 years. And I think that defeats the purpose of real estate, which is in my mind, you buy real estate, when you sell it you exchange and keep doing that and if you don't exchange just keep pulling out cash over the years you know tax deferred dollars and then eventually you know you pass and you, you get just don't it goes to the kids step up basis and like that that's the power of letting the money compound without the tax man touching it whereas like if you know we you pay the tax you have the capital gain plus the, all that recapture you're going to have to Make a huge return more than if you just rolled it to 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 be at the same place. Like if you if you look at a, you know study the numbers and stuff. So I think you're doing a disservice by buying in a fund real estate unless you're a entity like an institutional investor that doesn't like need, need those tax advantages. But for for, for most individuals, it, it would make sense to buy and hold and and just refi refi or buy and hold and sell in exchange. So. And then for us, it's, it's better, too, because we don't have to cross our promotes as well. So if we have one or two deals that don't do as well, we don't get killed on. on uh, and we, we, we can sort of buy and sell whenever. Like we, usually the fund is a 10-year thing and it's just more, more structured. I, I like having more flexibility as well.
0: Interesting. That's a, a very uh, valuable perspective. Because other, the, the other side is people say, well, I, I will only do funds because things go bad and uh, it diversifies my risk.
1: I think I always tell people just create your own fund with us basically. So like just put a little in a lot of the deals versus putting uh, a a lot in any one deal because some deals are, you know, do way better than others. And you you just, and I, you know, we, we invest at different times. We're always buying deals. So like put a little, you'll diversify geographically, you'll diversify over time and, and, um, and diversify just in dollars, like put a little on in everything instead of a lot in one.
0: Interesting. And do you guys distribute monthly or quarterly?
1: We do quarterly. I think. Did you Did you interview? I listened to the gentleman Mark from Hamilton Designs I, on a, on a pod. I, was it your interview
0: or someone else's? That well, that I can't tell you. I I, I have interviewed him.
1: Yeah, I uh, I haven't really seen them on any other podcast. So it was probably yours, but really interesting. I think they do monthly, but we, yeah, we, we've set it up from the beginning doing quarterly just because it takes so much time and energy from the accounting team. I I understand the appeal of doing monthly as an investor, just sort of cool having that consistent monthly thing, but it's also like the cash flows can be a little lumpy as well. So it's sort of easier and smooths it out doing doing quarterly as well. So I think we've sort of trained the investors that we, that's how we do it and it works. So we're not gonna change that
0: got it are there any markets that you have your eye on that we've not discussed
1: we're currently actively buying so socal uh Denver Salt Lake City Portland um those are the markets potentially norcal if the right opportunity came but yeah we've been beaten out a lot in Salt Lake Portland we've been successful Denver socal yeah so I, I'd love to buy more in Salt lake it's just been sort of a feeding frenzy right now. And um, we were, we were nice and early five years ago, six years ago. No, no one <laughs> wanted to go there. Just like Albuquerque, same as Albuquerque. Like we wanted to buy more there, but we just didn't pull the trigger. And now prices have run away from us. And we're potentially going to sell the one asset we have there. We're thinking about it potentially.
0: And what are cap rates that you're paying on the stuff you're exchanging, changing into in, you know, Denver, Salt Lake, Portland, et cetera.
1: Uh, it depends on when. So in January, we bought a 2000 built, um, property that was fully renovated by Saris Regis, big institutional kind of ownership. I think we bought it at like a four and a quarter cap, I wanna say, and at the time that was really low, but now, man, I mean, we've we've, we've made a lot of money on that, um, on pound paper because rents have climbed dramatically, cap rates have compressed. Uh, And then we bought uh, Anaheim, we closed a couple months ago, that was the lowest cap, at like around a 3.6, I want to say, give or take, but also has a lot of upside bringing it to around a 4.8, I think, four, eight cap or something like this. And this is with conservative underwriting as well. And then um, buying another deal, brand new deal and lease up that stabilizes probably high three cap or something. So it's definitely getting skinny, but we were able to, I felt fine paying up for that new one in Long Beach because literally the investors three or four x. On the deal we're selling in denver and tax defer exchange into a brand new building in an area that we really believe in for the long term and i think it'll just be a great way to preserve their capital and and their cash flows even though the cash flow on the new ones lower the the absolute dollars are going to shoot up for them because they're they're rolling way more than they had invested originally
0: and are you saying uh, a three to four time um equity multiple
1: uh, on the Denver, the, the thing we sold, we're selling in Denver now is like a, I think a three to four X. Yeah. So if someone put a hundred grand in, I think it's they made like 300 grand of profit or something crazy. So they'll have like 400 grand, a huge amount to roll. So even though the new things in the cash flow, call it 4%, it, it's 4% on the new dollars versus the, the last deal, uh, the cash flow got whacked because the, the, the loan went from interest only to amortization and collections were down a little bit. But, um, I think their, their absolute dollars are going to get quarterly is going to shoot up, and we just upgraded the property from a '60s or '70s build deal to a brand new building. And I think it's an upgrade in terms of market. SoCal I think is historically you know sort of more insulated and more desirable than even Denver's right now is on fire and it's great market growing, but it's had its booms and busts over the decades.
0: Very interesting. Well, um, my gosh, I mean, you're you're doing a lot of interesting things. And I guess the last question I have is this, is, um, you know, what do you do from corporate around the management and, you know, in the management companies you work with and like, what's your experience and approach to that?
1: Yeah, we are almost exclusively with, with uh, AMC, which is based out of um, Apartment management consultants out of Salt Lake, but they have a presence in most of the markets we're in. We also use locally Moss and Company in LA, and um, I think we still have one or two other management companies we work with on some of the markets that they're, those groups are not in. But we we outsource property management. We were never interested in being in the property management business. We let them handle the the day to day rent collection and you know the staffing and repair and maintenance and. Um, we have controls. So like if something's over a certain dollar amount, we, they have to get our approval. And we have weekly conference calls with the on-site manager and the regionals. And we're very hands-on and we oversee all the major capital expenditures, but like we pay a very competitive fee and it's um, not really a profit center management. It's, it's, it's a sort of a thankless, tough people business that we never really at wanted to be
0: in. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Well, listen, it's impressive what you've done for yourself. You know, it sounds like you've got your uh, focus is, is incredible and doing super smart things. And uh, you're just exchanging, exchanging, exchanging. That's what Hamilton Zans does. So I've done very well. Keith, if someone were uh, inclined to uh, get a hold of you and engage with GELT, how how would they do that?
1: Yeah, the listeners could feel free to um follow me on Twitter. I'm very active there. It's just Keith underscore Wasserman. Uh message me on LinkedIn or better yet, you could just email me. My my email is Keith K-E-I-T-H at Gelt G-E-L-T-I-N-C for incorporated.com. Yeah, the more specific the question, the better. And yeah, with with uh, love to hear from the audience.
0: Well, thank you very, very much for your time. I know you're busy and um, I will catch up with you soon. Sounds
1: good. Thanks for having me on, Roger.
0: Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.